Hello, and welcome to CM Conversations, a podcast brought to you by Charlton Morris. I'm today's host, Ben Cheatham, a recruitment consultant specialising in the additive manufacturing space. And in this episode, I'll be joined by James Hedrick, co-founder and the head of business development at Azure 3D, and member of the renowned Forbes 30 under 30 list. James started his first company at the age of 16, with the profits paying for his college tuition at MIT. He then went on to earn his PhD at Northwestern University with Professor Merkin, where he developed seminal technology that's at the core of what Azure 3D do now. Azure 3D are a 3D printing company, and they're looking to change the way additive manufacturing is used. Here's what happened when me and James caught up and talked about the future of Azure 3D, as well as touching up on injection molding versus 3D printing. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the company um, and how it came about. Perfect. That sounds great. So I'll, I'll start a little bit with where I started and how that fed into Azure 3D. So mm-hmm. I did my undergrad at MIT in chemical engineering and then went directly into my PhD in chemical engineering as well, working for Professor Chad Merkin at Northwestern University and was going through a lot of different research projects with him really in the field of nanolithography. And if you're not familiar with that field, what it is is just 2D printing really, really small. The best way to think about it is computer chips and a lot of different things around that sort of field. And one of the things that we were working on was 20 years of work of developing. And as we were starting to look at it, we saw the field of 3D printing really starting to grow over the past decade. And what we thought would be really exciting was could we make a nano 3D printer? Take these techniques that we were working on and go from 2D to 3D. And as we did this, what we realized is that we had solved a couple of the key limitations in macro scale 3D printing. So what we decided to do was really jump. We, we realized that nano was exciting. It was really great for solving fundamental problems. We actually solved something that would actually solve a lot of manufacturing product problems. So in 2017, we moved it out of the university and moved it into Azul 3D. Right. And it was three of us that were doing this. It was my PhD advisor, Professor Chad Merkin. There's an adjunct professor and postdoc in the lab, Dr. David Walker, and myself. And so now what we've been doing over the past three years is really just building the technology up um, into the world's fastest production 3D printer. And so now we're a company of 15 people, and we're in Skokie, Illinois today uh, in a manufacturing site, building these printers, printing parts for people. And really starting to push the boundaries of what's possible with 3D printing. Okay, okay, cool. And I mean, the the story there, obviously, you've looked to solve a problem as such, and you've come up with a solution. And last time we spoke, you touched on the fact that your product um, and your your technology uh, works in a in a slightly different manner to to other technologies in the fact that. It cools down, um, which allows you to to work in a different way. Do you, do you want to just sort of elaborate on that and the, the little backstory behind the technology and, and how that works for, for people that, that are going to be listening? Yeah, that, that sounds great. So thinking about 3D printing as a whole over the past 30 years. So we, we work in the liquid resin space, which is actually one of the first styles of 3D printing. Mm-hmm. It's often called stereolithography. And the concept is that you use light to be able to turn a liquid polymer into a solid piece of plastic and the pattern of light turns it from into an organized 3d printed image of exactly how you had drawn it up in your digital file 
what we've seen over the past 30 years is that uh, the original technology is still available today with not much modifications at all. And it just grew in size, but it, it stayed slow because the, the mechanisms never changed. Over the past five to seven years now, what you've seen is there's been a lot of companies that have come out when patents expired and started to change how these systems fundamentally work to go from a layer by layer system where you, you use a laser to cure one layer and then you move up, cure again and move up again over and over again to take 2D images and make a 3D printed part and move towards continuous printing where you can pull a single object out. When you do this, you can see a lot of that. You see the material properties com completely change. It's no longer a toy that's going to be brittle and break into your hand, but something that can start going against manufactured parts from injection molding. The issue that we've seen is that 3D printers that have come out there continuous before us use a chemical mechanism to enable the continuous nature. And I could spend hours going into how this works, but at the end of the day, one of the key limitations whenever you use a chemical mechanism is that they have trouble managing the heat. When you start printing fast, you can generate a lot of heat. We're talking about 150 degrees Celsius temperature swing in a matter of 10, 15 minutes. And for anyone who's not familiar with that, that's effectively going the same as put your cake into the oven cold and take it out and the heat that is coming out at, that's the temperature now. And if you know anything about putting your plastic toy into the oven at those temperatures, it's going to melt, it's going to warp. You're going to have huge issues at the end of the day. And so what we were able to do is have a completely different mechanism to continuous 3D printing that actually enables you to cool at the same time. And by cooling it, you can actually regulate the temperature of those parts so they don't warp as you print them. And so that means you can get higher reproducibility, but it also means you can print at larger sizes. So the larger the size, the more heat it generates. And so this is one of the key things that we've been able to unlock is that we've been able to match the speeds of the fastest printers that have ever been invented to date, but also match the sizes of the largest printers that have been made to date. And it's that combination of the old printers and the new printers where they've been pushing the boundaries and bringing them together that really starts to change 3D printing and push it into manufacturing. Right. Okay. So you've basically at the moment then you've solved two problems in one, being able to stop the warping, but also being able to print something super small or super large as well on the other side of the spectrum. So it's sort of a, a bit of a double whammy really, isn't it? Exactly. And when you start thinking about small versus large, it's not just making large parts, but it's making small parts in mass. You don't have to print one object at a time anymore. You can print thousands together in unison on a single printer. And that's that's what really starts to enable a lot of things. Okay. And just to give me an idea, how quickly can you print this? Have you done anything recently, perhaps that has, has really outweighed other technology and other companies in, in the way that they can use their products and their technology to make something? Can you give me an example of, of anything that you've done recently, perhaps? Yeah. So the best example I can give you is what we've been working on for the past six months. And that's what we've been doing to help with COVID, which is manufacturing face shields. So we manufacture the headband component of the face shield that you put the clear plastic sheet over, and we're able to print eight face shields in unison in a four minute print. To give you a relative, that, that means in the end of the day, we're able to get 2000 face shields per day okay, when you start taking change over time into it. And with that throughput, on average, most printers that are out there today are doing about five face shields a day. 
So we, we have been able to, with a single printer, have usually four times the capacity of most print shops that have 100 printers. And that starts to give you that relative sense of change of where you're going now with this difference of a single printer can do. Right. Okay. So it's, it's a considerable amount more than, than the average, which is, it's obviously a breakthrough um, in the technology that, that you've come up with. And with that being said, how do you think you're going to sort of disrupt the market moving forward? Because you're a, a fairly new company. Um, I know you've recently got some funding, which is fantastic as obviously to, to grow and expand. So how do you sort of think you're going to disrupt the, the industry with, with the technology that, the, that you've got? Yeah. So we're, we're taking a very different approach than other companies. Most companies that go out, the best way to disrupt the market is actually to get as many printers into as many people's hands as possible and really let them take the lead and really bring whatever is in their head to the market. And that's the beauty of 3D printing is that anyone can use one and start manufacturing or start prototyping. For us, because we're a smaller company, what we've been doing is partnering with with very specific strategic companies that are ready for manufacturing now. So that when we give them a printer, they are wanting to run that 24 seven so that they they want to go anywhere between 10,000 to 100,000 parts on a single pair and, and really start to scale up. Um, and so we've really been moving into manufacturers working directly with them, looking at what does it make sense to 3D print? Because not everything is meant to be 3D printed, but there's a lot of innate abilities that 3D printing has brought on since the 80s that if you can apply that to our throughput can really change the game. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. And I think from that, it's like, like you've just mentioned there, um, not everything's meant for, for 3D printing. Um, there is pros and cons of it. What would you say as a couple of pros and cons for people who are not perhaps familiar with 3D printing as such? And Because um, I know the technology for people who understand the market has been around for a long time, but for the general public, it's not. So what would you say that the pros and cons are of 3D printing over traditional sort of methods? Yeah, so the pros and cons with 3D printing really comes down to traditional manufacturing, like injection molding, how it works is you have to cut a mold and then you fill that mold with plastic to make your object. And you do that over and over again. The, the issue there is that there's a huge upfront time to cut that mold and there's a huge cost associated with it. You're talking about easily $100,000 with some of these more complex molds to be able to make them. And that, that's an upfront barrier to a lot of people. With 3D printing, you don't have any molds. It's mold-free because it's just the pattern of light. So that gives you a couple of things that give you advantage right off the bat. One, you can start with the face shields. It took us 48 hours to go from the idea in our head to doing all the prototyping and starting manufacturing. And that was something that you just couldn't do with traditional manufacturing it took them closer to four to six weeks to be able to catch up at that point into getting ramped up to manufacturing the other thing because you don't need to have a mold you can do geometries that you can never make with any other method and these are if you've ever looked at 3d printers that have these crazy lattice structures they're they're really simple to make on 3d printing but they're impossible to make by other methods. So these new structures you can make actually can give you better properties if it's engineered right. Or there's a couple other factors with 3D printing, such as localized manufacturing. The fact that with us with the face shields, we were doing it right here in Illinois versus most of the face shields that are produced 
in the world today are getting shipped from China here. And you had huge supply chain issues that you don't face when you're doing it in your backyard and sending it out locally. And the final thing that's, it, it, this is really the, the dream everyone wants to go to with 3D printing is that you can make every single part customized to the user that's going to buy that part at the end of the day. And it doesn't cost any more in terms of the production point. It's all software at that point. And as long as you have a software that can manipulate the parts so that each one is different to match exactly who the final user is going to be, you can have everything customized at really no added cost. Okay. Right. I think that's a big thing as well for people, isn't it? That the, the majority of the, the modern world now, everything comes down to cost. So for for the general public, um, you could buy perhaps a, a desktop machine. Um, but with yourselves, what's the sort of cost implications and how is cost sort of factored into it? Because obviously with the injection molding way of, uh, and the traditional methods, um, you've got to get the mold and there's a, there's a design uh, sort of lead time behind that. But with this technology, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's got a costly perhaps setup. Uh, and then after that, it's, it's unlimited to what, what you can do. So what's your thoughts on the cost implications and, and how this is going to change the mass production moving forward? as opposed to the injection molding. Yeah, and the cost is cost at the end of the day is the largest factor. And so what you'll find with 3D printing is that you have a high material cost, but no mold cost. In injection molding, you have a high mold cost, but a very low material cost. And so what you'll always find is there's a crossover point where you add those costs together with the total number of parts, the total weight of material you're using, and there's a certain number of parts where it does cross over. And this has become one of the large issues with 3D printing is that the market has been decreasing the price of material over the past 30 years. It used to be $3,000 for a kilogram of material. Now you're closer to $100 to $150 is the market rate for material. So it's dramatically dropped down over the past 20 to 30 years. But then if you start going to injection molding, you're talking about four to eight dollars a kilogram on average for a lot of materials so four dollars versus a hundred dollars there that's a big jump in difference right now and so as the market starts to decrease the price and we economies of scale start to hit as people adopt those prices are going to dramatically drop is what i foresee in the couple you know the next five to ten years where that that's really going to be something that opens up but the exciting thing is that if you can pair, if you can get close to cost today and then pair one of those things like customization, new geometries that I've mentioned before, that those things that 3D printing can do, injection molding cannot, you can now start to go into it for the first time. And, and one of the things that Azul really changes the game is where is the cost of your part distributed from the hardware side and the material side? into that part. So most 3D printers, the expense that you're going to be paying is the amortized hardware cost. The, the fact that you spent potentially hundreds of thousands or even up to a million dollars with some of these industrial 3D printers and you're, the, the amount of material you're going to be using is going to be relatively small compared to that price tag. With our system, what you'll find is it's really just a couple cents on the dollar in cost from the hardware because of our throughput so high. So as long as you're, you're using the printer for manufacturing, you'll find that your total cost is mostly just your, your resin. And that, that completely changes it. Rather, 
you know, if it's only a third resin for the other system, that makes it three times as expensive. And so this is something that can really change the game is that we do dramatically lower that cost with our system because of our higher throughput. Right. Okay. Okay. And and with that with that being said, then obviously, what what would you say your your target audience is going to be? Because when we previously had a, had a conversation, um, we we mentioned something that I think everybody can relate to and understand, uh, but that perhaps don't know how it's made, and that was the reference to Invisalign. These are all three D printed now, um, which is phenomenal to to say the least. I don't, I don't think many people will know that. That, that, that is actually used in 3D printing. But what sort of market are you going for and are you going to break through? Because like you say, it's a, a small cost to your, to your machines uh, relatively. So what market are you going to be focusing on and, and how are you going to break through uh, at Azul? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been targeting is that we're a smaller company. Where's all the key players and where's, where's the market been missing 3D printing but been wanting 3D printing? because we can do things that other 3D printing can't, companies cannot do it. So oh, going into dental, while well, that's a great market because what they're doing with Align and Invisalign retainers really has transformed what's been possible with 3D printing. We wanna go into more markets that haven't been touched like industrial um, goods, consumer goods, really go into larger automotive parts. Um, one of the examples that since we last spoke, we've, we've officially announced we have a collaboration with DuPont Imaging and Electronics, which is going into the electronics field and really starting to help change that field. And it, it's going into areas that haven't been using 3D printing before, but have large implications when they do adopt 3D printing. Okay. And where do you see this going in, in the future then? I mean, you've recently had some some a really big initial funding through the seed funding. So if you're focusing on this market, do you think you're really going to focus on that in sort of the next three to five years? Where, where do you see the company going now moving forward then? Yeah. So as a company, as you think about the three to five year vision, how we've always looked at it is that there's a lot of great markets ready to adopt 3D printing, but a lot of them have different barriers to entry. As you get to the five-year mark, that, that doesn't become an issue anymore. But how we've imagined it is that you start with, manufacturing right away with companies that don't have the same regulations as medical and automotive. You know, medical parts have to go through FDA process. It could be a multi-year process. Same automotive also has a very high um, level requirement. So we're starting to work with a lot of companies that are in these different spaces to get the ball rolling. But in the short term, we're working with companies that are, they're ready to manufacture next year so that we can get some really good case studies out there to really start to inspire people of what you can do with 3D printing so that when you get three years down the road to five years down the road, it's not just having a handful of great cases like a Visalign, like the shoe companies that have been out there or, or hearing aids. Those are the three major examples of manufacturing, but can you actually have dozens and even better hundreds of cases that are on that scale? And with the how we've shifted the economics in 3D printing, it does make it a lot easier for companies to be able to manufacture for the first time with not a huge capital upfront cost. And so it, it really lowers the barrier to entry. And we're, we're really imagine and we're envisioning that this is going to really revolutionize how companies are able to start using 3D printing for manufacturing for the first time. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a, it's a great point to to touch on getting people in as uh, an entry level without a, a huge upfront cost because I think as we mentioned before, cost is always at the forefront of everybody's mind. Um, so it's the budget and how much can we spend on this technology and is it going to work? Is it going to be worthwhile? But if they can enter the market knowing that it's relatively cheap. Um, we say cheap, but uh, compared to other machines uh, that can cost up to a million, it, like you say, it, it's it's fantastic and it's going to re- revolutionize uh, things moving forward. So um, really exciting times for the market. We've we've had a very tough year, but uh, for, from what you've said and the, the things that uh, that we're reading about Azul and, and hopefully where it's going to go, I can only wish you all the best and uh, it, it's going to be exciting times, James. Thank you. I appreciate it, Ben. Yeah, no, good. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming back uh, and obviously having a chat with myself going through that. And uh, no, thanks very much and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate it as well. I'm always glad to chat. takeaway from my discussion with James is the potential that this technology has. What Azure 3D are doing has never been done before. Their HARP technology provides a complete offering of speed, strength and repeatability for the market. It's also able to print large objects at unparalleled speeds from a wide range of consumer and industrial grade plastics. As Azure 3D continues to grow, I'll be excited to see how they can revolutionize the industrial manufacturing space. For more podcasts like this, please subscribe to CM Conversations.